continue to pray, we want to pray for Melanie Anderson. You can look up here. This is Melanie, and Melanie's leaving in six days for Uganda on a mission trip with Lance Finkbeiner from our church, who's already on another mission trip where they'll be doing all sorts of service things, and hopefully Melanie will be singing, and she sings here a lot and is a music major at CU, and she's got nodules on her vocal cords right now, so let's pray for her, commissioning her to go to Uganda and asking God to shrink the nodules so she can sing really loud throughout all of Africa, right? So, so God, I just thank you for Melanie, and uh, Lord, I thank you for your life in her, the light in her eyes, the warmth in her heart, the gifts that you have given her, and I pray for Melanie and Lance as, and the rest of the team as they make this journey to Africa, that, Lord God, they would be able to communicate your grace and they would experience your grace being communicated uh, to the through the people that they'll meet. And Lord God, I do pray, we pray that you would shrink these nodules on Melanie's vocal cords, that she would be able uh, to use the gifts that you have given her, these gifts that you have given her, you've given her a lot, but, but on this trip. So Lord, we thank you for Melanie, we bless her and we commission her. Lord, we also thank you for the other people um, around the country and around the world that, that kind of tap into the sanctuary here. Think of the group meeting down in Dallas, Dallas, and uh, Lord, also in the Philippines, both those groups, they, they call themselves the, the sanctuary, which is kind of weird for me, Lord, that in so many ways we're so small and yet in other ways we're so big. We, we pray for all of them, and we thank you, Lord, that your church really does have no walls. It's your people bound together by your Spirit. We pray, Lord God, that you would bless all of them and that you would cause us to be the people that you want us to be and cause your church to be the church that you want it to be. Lord God, we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Did you have anything to add, Kathleen? Well, yes, I do. Okay. <laughs> Lord, I just want to pray over the offering that we're about to receive and give. And I pray that um, just as you have lavished on us um, all the good things, I pray that we, you would give us generous hearts and happy hearts as we give. In Christ's name, amen. I went down, 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 and the flames went higher, and it burns, 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 the ring of fire, the ring of fire. The taste of love is sweet, when hearts like ours meet. I fell for you like a child. But the fire went wild I fell into a burning ring of fire I went down, down, down And the flames went higher And it burns, burns, burns The ring of fire The ring of fire The ring of fire So, Father, we thank you that you are fire, and we confess that we have been your enemies, and so the fire burns. But, Lord God, this morning we pray that we would fall into your ring of fire, and that you would be the fire that burns within us, and the fire that proceeds from us. I pray that you would help us, Lord God, to preach. In Jesus' name, amen. We Spartans are descended from Hercules himself, taught never to retreat, never to surrender, taught that death in the battlefield is the greatest glory he could achieve in his life. Spartans, the finest soldiers the world has ever known. Be afraid! Sparta will burn to the ground! of the Persian Empire descend upon you. Master King, 
instead ask yourself, what should a free man do? Threaten my people with slavery and death. This is madness. Madness. This is Sparta! We will stand and fight. A new age has begun. An age of freedom. And all who know the 300 Spartans give the last breath to defend it. Tonight, we dine in hell! We're in for one wild night. Tonight, we dine in hell! I don't know if that's such a, a wise thing to say, actually. Um, uh, but that was, uh, this is Father's Day, and, and that was kind of a cool Father's Day clip, don't, don't you think? Um, and those were some incredible abs. Those were amazing abs in that movie. And, and I have great abs. And, and sometimes you can even see them. If I stand like in the right angle to the sun, grab my fat and kind of just like pull it down and then scrunch really, really hard, you, you can... You can kind of see a line. Uh, but hopefully you know that was the trailer uh, to the movie 300, which was about the uh, supposedly 300 Spartans in the Battle of Thermopylae during the Persian Wars in 480 B.C. The man yelling was King Leonidas of Sparta, who chose to defend Greek against Xerxes the Persian. I don't know if you realize this, but Xerxes was married to Esther in the Bible. I just think that's, that's kind of cool. Well, supposedly Leonidas and the 300 select Spartan warriors withstood this massive Persian army at the pass uh, called Hell's Gate, or, or no, the Hot Gate, Thermopylae, which leads down into southern, southern Greece. They, they failed, but the 300... The 300 received great glory. You get that? They failed, but they received incredible glory because of their great fighting skills and, of course, their well-defined ab abdominal muscles. I actually did some research. It turns out that there were like a thousand other Greeks that were also at the Battle of Thermopylae defending the pass, but uh, they obviously didn't possess such great abdominal muscles, and so the legend is about the 300 Spartans, not the like 1,000 chubby Corinthians or something. Well, anyway, anyway, the 300 Spartans are legendary. They're legendary, but they're not the original 300. About 700 years earlier, 300 Israelites under the direction of a guy named Hacker, which pronounced in Hebrew is, is Gideon. Under the authority of Gideon, 300 Israelites routed 135,000 Midianites and their gods. And it wasn't a failure. It was a victory. And by the numbers, even more impressive than Thermopylae, and, and yet the Spartans get all the glory and even a Hollywood movie. My theory is that the legend of the 300 Spartans is like a human corrective on the biblical story of the 300 Israelites. For the 300 Israelites appear to have no special skills or well-defined abs. Last week we began to look at this story of Gideon and, and the 300. Judges 6, 1 through 2, I just want to review a little bit, ask some questions, then look at how they won the battle. Uh, six, one, 6 verse 1, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of uh, the Lord, of Yahweh. Now, in most English Bibles, whenever Lord is all in caps, or those little caps, it's translating the Hebrew word Yahweh which is really significant because Lord also meant like sir, uh, and I don't think that translated into the software that translates the scripture up there. So I'm going to say Yahweh, where it's Yahweh, 
instead of just Lord. Okay, and and that, that's important. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh, and Yahweh gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens, the caves that are in the mountains, and the caves and, and the, the strongholds. The, the people then cry out to Yahweh, and he answers through a prophet, verse 10, I said to you, I am Yahweh, your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. And so the evil that Israel did was fear. In specific, fear of the gods of the Amorites, Midianites, and Amalekites. Because they feared those gods, they worshiped and served those gods. Kind of like Americans worship and serve uh, 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 American gods. Israel worshiped Baal, Asherah, and a host of lesser Canaanite gods. And, and what do you suppose should be their punishment? You see, that's hard because they're already prisoners of fear, right? They're already hiding in caves and dens and dark places under the mountains, weeping and gnashing their teeth. You know, the Hebrew word for a place like that is Sheol, and in Greek, Hades. And in some English Bibles, that gets translated as, as hell. It, it's not that there might not be a place like that. In fact, Jesus says there is a place like that even after the body dies. It's not that there's not a place like that. It's, it's that, that Israel is already there. Well, their hearts are still beating. Verse 11, now Yahweh came, the angel of Yahweh, came and sat under the terebinth at Oprah, which belonged to Joash the Abizrite, while his son Gideon, hacker, was hacking out, beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. The winepress was like a, a pit in the rock or, or the earth. So Gideon, like the rest of Israel, is hiding in the earth and choking on fear, but he's surrounded by the, uh, the ingredients for making bread and wine when under a tree suddenly appears a man who is God. And not only God, the Word of, of God. So this has got to be Jesus. So pay attention. And the messenger of Yahweh appeared to him and said to him, Yahweh is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my lord, if Yahweh is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our father recounted to us, saying, Did not Yahweh bring us up out of Egypt? But now Yahweh has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And Yahweh turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you. And Gideon said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my father's house. And Yahweh said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man, as one man. Hmm. Well, anyway, God is, or Midian is, he's got to be wondering to himself, How can you call me a mighty man of valor? when I'm hiding in a wine press choking on fear. And what do you mean, this might of mine? What might are you talking about? And how can I save Israel? Israel. Israel, Israel, Israel. Think, now, now that, this is a fascinating question for evangelical Christians. How do you save people that are already supposedly saved. I mean, Israel is God's chosen people, called out for his service. People called out is the Hebrew word kahal, which for some reason gets translated from the Hebrew as assembly or congregation in most English Bibles. But the Jews in Jesus' day translated it with, with the Greek word ekklesia, when ecclesia is translated from the Greek into the English in the New Testament, in English Bibles, it always gets translated church. You see, I'm saying that in Scripture, Israel is clearly God's church. 
And now, so are you. So am I. So are we. We are the people called out at Kaleo for God's service and grafted into Israel. And the gifts and the call of God are irrevocable, writes Rabbi St. Paul. So Gideon is not sent to save the unsaved. He's sent to save the church. Which raises a fascinating question. What is he saving the church from? Well, number one, at least Midianites, right? At least. But did you know that two times in the Old Testament, Yahweh says this, beside me, Yahweh, there is no savior. That clearly means that anytime anyone gets saved from anything, God's doing the saving. Your cheeseburger saved you from starvation. God did that. Your car saved you from walking to work. God did that. Your t-shirt saved you from a sunburn. God did that. Yahweh did that. In Scripture, save is, is a really big word. It means help. And Scripture is clear. God is our helper. Well, number one, Gideon is called to save Israel from Midianites. And number two, Gideon is called by God to save Israel from God's wrath. I mean, God gave them into the hand of Midian. That's what we just read, and that's what Scripture defines as wrath. That's the way Paul defines it in Romans chapter 1. So Gideon is called to save Israel from Midianites, from wrath, and from hiding in caves under the, the, the mountains. The, the Hebrew word that describes that place, remember, is, is Sheol. He's, he's to save them from Sheol, often translated hell. In the New Testament, I count 18 direct warnings given to people regarding what we translate or we think of as hell. Hades, uh, uh, Gehenna, and uh, the outer darkness. 18 warnings, and all 18 are issued by Jesus. But not one is issued to a tax collector or a prostitute or a Gentile. All are issued to Israelites, God's church. Fifteen of the 18 times the people warned are identified as followers of Christ. The other three times they're identified as Pharisees, who were arguably the group closest to Jesus in what they believed. So it's clear that Jesus warned folks about something that we call hell, but it seems that the people most in danger of going there were the people that thought they were never going there, and there are a bunch of other people going there who would never get out. The people most in danger were self-righteous religious people. Almost as if the measure you give is the measure you get. Well, Gideon is sent to save his church from Sheol. He's sent to save them from hiding under the earth. But, of course, they have chosen to hide under the earth in fear. So, number four, he's to save the church from fear. And, of course, the thing that God says they fear, they've come to fear the gods of the people in whose land they have come to dwell. They fear Baal and Asherah and gods like Moloch, the god of the underworld. Of course, they're all idols made by man, and yet Scripture clearly says they're, they're systems of thought as well, systems of thought inhabited by demons like we spoke about last week. Number five, Gideon is sent to save the church from God's idols and demons. And at this point, I have like a, just a slew of crazy stories and even a, a video, but they freak people out, and so they miss the point. So suffice it for now for, for me to say that we still battle the principalities and powers. And from experience, I know the names of uh, some of these spirits, powers that we have battled, names like secrets and Antichrist, which means imitation Christ, and Lucifer, who poses as an angel of light, and recently Asherah, who, who tempts people to control by promising life but delivering death. So anyway, I'm just saying Gideon is sent to save the church from false gods and idols, and, and like we said last time, the idol behind every idol is you. And by that I mean Mises. Instead of Jesus, 
By Mises, I mean the belief that me is salvation. When the name Jesus literally means God is salvation, Yahweh is salvation, Yahweh Yasha, shortened to Yeshua, Jesus as opposed to, to Mises. Mises, I think, is a, has a unique form, a particular form, as an American god, and it seems to me that much of the church in America confuses Mises with Jesus, and that's why they get so offended at the idea of Jesus saving all. For if Jesus saves all, it reveals that me saves none from Scripture and from my freaky, weird experiences. I've learned that Satan and his demons gain their power, maybe all their power, by convincing people of one of two lies or, or both. Number one, that God doesn't love them. That is, that God doesn't want to save them. And number two, that God can't save them because Mises is stronger than Jesus. Because our bad will is stronger than God's good will. Because our sin is stronger than God's grace. That's, that's the lie. Once I began to discern those lies, I was horrified to realize that I most often heard those lies in church. I was horrified to realize that the church often preaches Mises in, instead of Jesus. You know, faith in, in Mises, well, it can produce buildings and programs and institutions, but Mises cannot save you because Mises is you. Beside Yahweh, there is no Savior, not your fear, not your works, not your supposed free will, not anything, not even your well-defined abs. So number six. Gideon is sent to save Israel from themselves. He's sent to save Israel from their own body of death, what Paul refers to as the flesh. The problem with the flesh is not that it's physical, but it's hopelessly self-centered. Your flesh feels only its own pleasure, its own pain. It grows by consuming life and excreting death. <laughs> I mean, your flesh is made of earth, and it gets bigger by consuming life that is also made of earth. That's how we grow our earthen vessel, our, our, jar, of, our jar of clay. Now, that can be good if the life is offered and loved and received in gratitude, but it's evil if the life is taken in fear and possessed in pride, and that's what we've all done in an effort to make ourselves in the image of God. And that's how each of us has become his own worst enemy, his own deepest hiding place, his own greatest fear, and his own false god. So number seven, Gideon is sent to save God's people from their sin. And, and, and do you see this? God's wrath burns towards Israel's sin which is trusting in themselves to save themselves, which causes them to serve demons and live in fear and choose to hide in hell. And so that's why God delivers them up into the hand of Midian, that they would come to know God is salvation. Yahashua, Yeshua, the God-man standing on the edge of the wine press. Well, anyway, God is sending Gideon to save Israel from all those things and to save Israel for something else. Listen to this. Genesis 28, 14, God said this to the man Israel. He said, your seed shall be like the dust of the earth, and in you and your seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. All the families. Families, the word also is translated tribes or peoples or nations. In you and your seed shall all the nations be blessed. Well, that would include Midian and every family in Canaan. See, even God's punishments on Israel or Canaan, even death and Hades, all of God's punishments are ultimately blessing. God is sent to save Israel so that in and through Israel, all humanity might be saved. 
Gideon is sent to save. But he asks, how can I save? And that's a great question. I hope it's occurred to you already as we were talking about these things. How can I save? If only God saves, how can Gideon save? I, I, I think that's like our, our other question. The God-man says, go in this might of yours and save Israel. What is this might of Gideon's? And how does he go in it? See, that is quite a conundrum for Gideon and for you and for me and for all human flesh and all human religion. Gideon cannot acquire this might. He can't develop a plan for achieving this might sometime in the future, as if it's something that could happen or will happen in the future. He cannot teach a class at church called How to Get the Might. He can't acquire the might because the God-man just said he already has the might. You can't make yourself a mighty man of valor if God just called you a mighty man of valor. You can't make yourself Peter the Rock if Jesus just called you the Rock. Go in this might of yours. Well, I've experienced what some would call God's might. Since I was a kid, I've prayed in tongues. But it happened because my friend Ricky said, hey, Pete, you want to pray in tongues? And then I just, I don't know, it happened. I've experienced miraculous healings, and a couple times I've prayed for folks that undeniably were miraculously healed, but it didn't happen due to my depths of knowledge, even though I took classes on healing prayer at Fuller Seminary, and it didn't happen due to the strength of my will, but something more like the end of my will. And, and I've been literally pinned to the ground by the might of God, the power of God, but it wasn't because of my obedience. As I reflect on it now, I realize this is more like because of my disobedience. And I've cast out demons. I mean, gods like Baal and Asherah and even Satan. But it wasn't in situations that I controlled. In fact, it felt more like I had utterly lost control and God was in control. Well, those things are what some people call God's might. But you know, Jesus referred to them as signs. And he said, an evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign. We're all to desire gifts of the Spirit, but then Paul goes on to say, but I will show you a still more excellent way. We're all to desire gifts of the Spirit, but gifts of the Spirit are not the Spirit. On his last night with his disciples, Jesus said this, truly I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go to the Father and send you the Spirit, that's His Spirit. We think greater works is greater gifts and greater signs. Let's John 14. In John 15, Jesus goes on to describe the greater works. There is no greater love. And remember, all the works that God asks us to do are summed up with that word love. And without love, it's nothing. There's no greater love. There's no greater love than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Literally, that a man lay down his psyche, his soul. That's the earthen vessel. So, so God's might is not achieved through the strength of our will. And God's might is not achieved through the depths of our knowledge. God's might is not achieved through the strength and wisdom of the earthen vessel, but something more like the sacrifice or the surrender of the earthen vessel. The earthen vessel that you think is you. God is love. And Jesus is the word of love. There cannot be a greater might than the word of love through whom all things are created and sustained. God's might is the God-man who is with Gideon in the wine press as he chokes on fear. He, he says to Gideon, but Gideon, I will be with you. I'll be with you. 
See, Gideon can't make that happen. He can only believe that it has happened. And he can only believe now. He can only believe now because the God-man is causing him to believe now. And, and maybe he's causing you to believe now. He's the Word of God. And hopefully, that's, that's what I'm preaching. He says, but Gideon, I will be with you. At that, you remember, Gideon runs and gets a goat, and he makes, a, he makes a, these cakes out of flour, and he brings them back. He sets them on the rock. The God-man touches them, and the sacrifice is consumed in fire, and then the God-man, like, vanishes in the fire, almost as if he is the fire or the sacrifice in, in the fire. Scripture says that God is love, and God is fire. That means love is fire. So love in us is the fire of God in an earthen vessel. In Judges uh, 6.25, then Gideon destroys, you remember he destroys the idols of Baal and Asherah in the middle of the town, and he's nicknamed Jerubbaal, which means let Baal contend against him. And then Baal does contend against him in the form of 135,000 Midianite troops. Clothed in the spirit, Gideon then assembles 32,000 Israelite troops. He musters the troops by the spring of Herod. I took this picture of the spring of Herod, uh, Gideon's spring, when we were in Israel 10, 10 years ago. 32,000, all right, do the math, 32,000 against 135,000, and then God says this to Gideon. The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, into Israel's hand. Lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Getting the troops are too strong, says the Lord. They're too strong. Lest Israel have faith in Mises rather than Jesus. Lest my church have faith in the idol that is themselves rather than the salvation that is me. Too many troops, Gideon, not to win the war with Midian, but to win the war with fear and Sheol and idolatry and flesh and sin. So through Gideon, God says to the 32,000, if you're afraid, go home. <laughs> and 22,000 do go home. And what do you suppose they did when they got home? I suspect that they hid in caves weeping and gnashing their teeth. I suspect that they threshed wheat in the wine presses, choking on their own fear. You see, their punishment is to remain as they are, in bondage to fear, at least, at least until the God-man shows up in their wine press and helps them believe. Do you know that you're not better than anyone else? But you might be further along than everyone else. In which case, maybe you could help someone else move along. Well, at the spring, God makes Israel weak that they might know his strength. And then he makes Israel foolish that they might know his wisdom. Verse 4, Yahweh said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Take them down to the water and I will test them for you there. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water and Yahweh said to Gideon, everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped by putting their hands to their mouths was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down, all the way down to drink the water. And Yahweh said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. And now let all the others go, every man to his home. 
There are all sorts of theories as to why the 300 men who lifted the water to their mouths are better than the 9,700 men who knelt all the way down to, to drink, kind of like a dog. Some argue that the 300 kept their heads up, and so they were more alert. But as you can see, the spring faces a cliff. And not only that, surely one of the 10,000 other dudes could have said, hey, I'll check for Midianites. Well, you get a drink. So that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Rashi, the medieval rabbi, taught that the 300 didn't bend as low as the others, and in this way, uh, they demonstrated less of a propensity to bend down before idols. One author I read thought it was some sort of IQ test. All of those explanations, you see, are an effort to explain why these 300 Israelites were stronger and wiser than the other Israelites just like the 300 Spartans were stronger and wiser than the other Greeks. In my mind, all those explanations then entirely miss the point. So last week in our staff Bible study, Carl said to me, he said, Hey, Pete, I bet the guys who didn't bend all the way down but lifted the water to their mouth, I bet those were the guys like with the biggest bellies. In other words, they must have been the guys with the worst abs. And I think that is like exactly the point. God didn't want Israelites that would glory in their abs. He wanted Israelites with the, the weakest earthen vessels. He wanted guys like this. This is, this is who he wanted. Now, if you think I'm joking, Listen to St. Paul in 1 Corinthians. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So that no human being might glory in Mises rather than Jesus. For that reason, God chose what is weak and what is foolish in the world. You know, I used to feel pretty strong and pretty wise, but like for the last 10 years, I just keep feeling progressively more and more weak and, and foolish. So maybe I'm chosen. And maybe you're chosen. Maybe we're chosen to saved the church from her bondage to the principalities and powers and the world rulers of this present darkness. Maybe we've been chosen to save the church so the church can get on with saving the world. There used to be several, several thousand. But now on our best day, which ironically is not Father's Day, but on our best day, which is usually Christmas or, or Easter, those assembled here are about 300. And most of us have poorly defined abs. Don't, don't mean to hurt your feelings or anything, but that's just, the, that's, that's probably true. Well, anyway, God shrinks the troops saying, if you're afraid, go home. And then he shrinks them some more and makes them feel foolish. He weakens the earth and vessels. And check this out. It turns out that Gideon, Gideon is still afraid. So God has Gideon sneak down to the Midianite camp where he overhears a Midianite recounting a dream to another Midianite. And then that Midianite interprets the dream saying God is giving Midian into the hand of Gideon. God is so in charge. He's so in charge that he controls Midianite dreams and the thoughts in the Midianites' heads. Which does make us wonder, why doesn't God just smite the Midianites? Why all this drama? Well, maybe God isn't battling Midianites. He's battling Gideon and Gideon's fear and helping Gideon to believe in God who is salvation. Maybe God is helping you to believe in God who is salvation right now. Maybe that's the reason for all the drama and the Word of God in the midst of the drama.
Well, anyway, Gideon is so overwhelmed at the realization that God is truly almighty and that God is truly intent on salvation. He's so overwhelmed that he spontaneously just begins to worship. Scripture doesn't say how, but when Gideon worships, Gideon knows exactly what to do. And it doesn't even require abdominal muscles. Judges 7 verse 15, as soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, arise for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets in their hands and all, and uh, the hands of all of them and emptied jars. That's earthen vessels with torches inside the jars. We're talking fire here in an earthen vessel. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. All the glory belongs to the Lord, but the Lord is happy to share it with Gideon because Gideon Gideon understands it's not by might, it's not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Gideon knows that all the glory is grace, and none belongs to his abs. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set the watch. And they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew trumpets and broke all the jars. So it was like a ring of fire surrounding the, the enemy. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And, and then they cried out a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. But they're holding trumpets. Every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord said, every man sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fell as, fled as, as far as, as Beth Shittah. Now Beth, Beth is, is Hebrew for house, so they fled as far as the house of Shittah. Toward Zerarah, as far as the border of Abel Moholah by Tabith. So how did the 300 defeat the Midianites and the gods of the land? They blew trumpets. And not just any trumpet, the, the shofar, it means the ram's horn. That's like the strength of the sheep on top of their, their head. At this point in Scripture, so far it's happened three times. In Exodus 19 and 20, a shofar is sounded by God, and it signals that Israel can approach the holy mountain. In Leviticus 20, we read that it was blown on the day of a judgment. It was to be blown on the day of atonement that began the year of Jubilee. In Joshua 6, on the seventh day, the seventh time around, the seven priests blow seven trumpets and the walls of Jericho come tumbling down. The shofar signals the inbreaking of the seventh day when everything is very good, sin is atoned for, all are set free, share all things in common, and all come home to the holy mountain. The trumpet is the gospel announcement that God is salvation. And the trumpet is judgment on the lie that me is salvation. If you believe God is salvation, I bet God is calling you to speak God is salvation. Ephesians 1.19, there is an immeasurable greatness of power, his power, in us who believe. Immeasurable. You might say, but I'm weak and foolish and I have flabby abs. Well, maybe that is exactly why he has chosen you. Chosen you to speak, speak to your friends, to your family, your neighbors, your, your church, saying, telling them, God is love, and so he desires to save. God is almighty, and so he can save. God is Jesus, and so he does save, and so... You can trust him and stop hiding in fear. In the fall, I'll be teaching a five-week class on Wednesday nights that will help you defend that biblically. But you don't need to wait for the class to share this incredibly good news. You're to become like a child talking to another little child saying something like this. I know daddy hurt you, and I know he hurt your feelings. I know you feel hurt, and I know he sent you 
to your room, but he doesn't hate you. He doesn't want to torture you. He's teaching you. Our daddy loves you more than you can know, and you can trust him. You know, in just that simple statement is the word through whom all things are created. The word that's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. The, the word that destroys the works of the devil, sets the captives free, and makes all things new. Second Corinthians 10.4, Paul continues, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging a war according to the flesh. That's our earthen vessel. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments. And every lofty opinion, proud thought, raised against the knowledge of God. Just saying God is salvation destroys the demonic stronghold of me is salvation. Paul continues, 12.9, The Lord said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The 300 blew their trumpets, and then they broke their earthen vessels revealing holy fire. Your body is an earthen vessel, and the Spirit of God is holy fire. The Spirit, which is also the breath, is in the blood. God calls you to tell people of his salvation and bleed his blood, which is fire. Like I said, I've had some really undeniable and truly amazing, freaky, weird encounters with demonic powers. And I have seen captives set free from the deepest, darkest prisons that you could, could imagine. It's involved lots of prayer. It's involved spiritual gifts. It's involved words of knowledge, the breaking of curses, and the proclamation of deliverance in Jesus' name. But in the end, it's all about helping a person believe that God is love and so desires to save. And God is almighty and so can save. God is Jesus and so has saved. And in every case, the deliverance, I think, and just in every case, if you trace it back, that deliverance has started because someone with flabby abs who named the name of Jesus was willing to bleed for that person in bondage just a little bit. I mean, they may not have even known what they were doing, but what they did was bleed fire, holy fire. I think the sanctuary is called to preach God is salvation to the church in bondage to false gods on our way to outer darkness. I think we're called to preach the gospel and prove it by bleeding love. Revelation 12:11. We conquer by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. You see, we overcome by blowing the trumpet and allowing our earthen vessel to be broken in the service of love. I don't think God has used anyone in my life to cause me to fall more in love with Jesus than my dad. But it wasn't because he was a pastor. It wasn't because of what he learned at Princeton Seminary, and it wasn't because of the strength of his abs. It was because I saw my father broken. And when he was broken, he bled love. He bled fire. It's not a curse to be broken in, in the service of love. It's an invitation to wield the greatest of all weapons. It's an invitation to bleed our Lord's blood. Once the Lord showed a friend of mine that her, her wounds were, were his wounds and that those wounds bled fire. It happened because one night she served communion in church, and, and when she did, her hands burned. Jesus showed her in a vision that they burned, for fire had come out of her old wounds. And he showed her that the fire had also come out of the communion cup. He showed her uh, that, the same, uh, that it was the same fire and, and the same blood that came from the cup uh, that now poured out of her, her wounds. It burns evil, and it sets 
captives free. The fire is love poured out. It's forgiveness. That's what the evil one is terrified of. It's forgiveness, it's mercy, it's grace. Fathers, listen closely. You have no greater weapon in all your arsenal than this, that you allow yourself to be wounded by your children, and that when you let them break your heart, you bleed nothing but love. And so Jesus, from the bosom of the Father, took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. And he took the cup, saying, this cup is the covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you. In the morning, he allowed us. He allowed us. He, he said, no one can take my life from me, my psyche from me. He allowed us. He allowed us to break his earthen vessel, and he bled holy fire. Come to his table and drink it. In Jesus' name, amen. And it's so weird to think that you would like to be crowned by us, but it makes sense if we're your kids and you're the dad, and so we crown you this morning, Lord of all. Yahweh, you are Lord of all, and we hail the power of Jesus' name. Not because it's like a J and E and S, U and S that we wear on our t-shirts with pride or something, but because it means Yahweh is salvation. And so we thank you for the power in that name that breaks all other chains, all other curses, all other pronouncements, all the things that bind us and hold us in fear. And so, Lord God, we crown you Lord of all, and we praise the power of Jesus' name. Happy Father's Day. Dad, <laughs> in Jesus' name we pray, amen. And so, um, by way of benediction, this is just what I want to say, and I really mean this. I hope that you, okay, would blow the trumpet. You, you actually believe that God is salvation and that he's good at it and that he has the power to pull off what he set out to do. So, so blow that trumpet. And you don't have to know everything, understand everything, and we have some things to help you do that, but, but, but just blow it. Tell people God, God is love, and so he desires to save, and he's almighty, and so he can save. Oh, he's Jesus, and look. Look at how he saves. He does save. When you say that to people, and you really mean it, you'll get kickback. People will get angry. When they get angry, sometimes they'll hurt you. And then this is your assignment, to bleed fire. In Jesus' name, believe the gospel, blow the trumpet, and bleed fire. Amen? Amen. <laughs> All right. Have a great day. See you next week. <laughs>